Mark chapter 7, verse 23 verses. I don't uh, like romantic comedy films uh, as a rule of thumb. Um, But I do remember coming across uh, this one 15 years or so ago uh, that's called Shallow Hal. Now the premise was interesting, even though the film was no good. Uh, The main male male character, uh, when he was dating, uh, would not see the physical... um, actual physical outer appearance of the woman in question but would see a a physical manifestation of what she was like on the inside if she was um, self obsessed and vain she would appear physically ugly to him if she had a nice kind heart and sweet personality she would appear attractive to him even though she didn't meet the, the standard Hollywood stereotype definition of beauty of course which is on the outside I have to be careful how I tell that one this morning because I could get myself into trouble. Jesus, of course, is in trouble, isn't he, in Mark chapter 7. He, he's again with the Pharisees. Uh, and last time um, he, he, he's been challenged with how he, he allows his disciples to act on the Sabbath day. This time they're after him over a matter of cleanliness. The first point we notice is, is that they're promoting purity. It appears that along with the issue of the Sabbath, which which they've dealt with before, uh, the Pharisees have the matter of personal hygiene high on their to-do list for people in Israel to stick to. And for Jesus to to not promote such a thing, to not insist on such a thing, was was unacceptable to them. The motive, um, as it transpires, uh, is, is not in effect personal hygiene, but religion. This is not soap and water hand washing uh, as we might think of it today, but a, but a religious ritual. To them, Jesus was religiously incorrect by not following suit, uh, and he again had, was threatening their vision of a smooth running sort of holy community of Jewish people. And so top men have again travelled up from Jerusalem uh, to, to oppose Jesus. After leaving this behind for a few chapters, the conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment starts again in in Mark chapter 7. This time it revolves around the issue of defilement. Of course there are purity laws in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus you can find out how how the children of Israel were to live uh, in chapters 11 to 15. uh, They had clean and unclean animals that you you were allowed to eat the clean ones, you were not allowed to eat the unclean ones. Cleanliness and purification after childbirth was another um, chapter that uh, you, can, you can read uh, that, that specifically d- determines the rules for that. And cleanliness and skin diseases and discharges was another issue that they, they had uh, instructions on. Purity laws in the Old Testament. The Pharisees have been watching and they accuse the disciples of eating with hands that are defiled. You see it there in verse 2. Defiled, that, that's a word that, that means common. It's, it's the opposite of holy. It's, it's the opposite of devoted to God. Mark explains that the defilement that they have in mind refers to unwashed hands. And then in verse 3 and 4 he, he inserts a bit of an explanation about this Jewish ritual hand washing for, for readers that are not familiar with such a thing. Remember he was writing to a, a Roman audience and so they wouldn't have really understood this. Of course, this this helps us too, for we don't have any such cultural understanding of that kind of thing. And and, and there isn't much mention of it elsewhere in scripture, is there either? 
In John chapter 2, we do come across something of this kind of thing because we're told that the stone water jars that Jesus asked them to fill with water at the, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And of course he turns those, the water that day into wine. So we come across it there, but there's very little uh, for us to, to go on in terms of understanding this practice. Clearly, the Levitical system being practiced regarded uncleanness as something that you could transfer uh, to other uh, people, vessels, clothes, this kind of thing, by touch, by lying down, by sitting, and, and, and so there was a need for ritual washing. But was this in the scriptures, or was it just an unnecessary tradition? For such a, a, a rite or, or such purification jars, they're, they're not actually mentioned in, in Leviticus directly. And Jesus is taking on even more than that by not insisting on this practice for his disciples. Because that statement there in verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews, implies that to be Jewish, like culturally, one washes one's hands, one washes one's cups, one washes one's vessels. If Jesus undermines this tradition, he's taking on a, a sort of significant weight of national identity and practice. To be French means to kiss on the cheek. To be Japanese means to bow. To be Jewish means to to ritually wash. It's that kind of idea. He was taking that on. And if defilement and being made unholy is your condition, then of course that, that would matter to God, wouldn't it? For he tells us to be holy. For be holy for I am holy. By popular belief, you couldn't worship God if if you hadn't washed your hands uh, before eating or or, or when you just come from the marketplace because you would be unclean, you you would be unholy. And we all know that cleanliness is next to godliness. That's in the Bible, isn't it? Or or is it? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Many people think that's in the Bible. Uh, But of course it's, it's, it's just another one of those passages that people assume are in the Bible. But actually are not. A bit like God helps those who help themselves. Or God works in a mysterious way. Or the seven deadly sins. People think those are in the Bible but they're not. I looked up cleanliness is next to godliness. Just out of interest. It actually originates from early Hebrew tracts, it says. In other words, it goes right back to the Old Testament, and we still have it today. People say that. In fact, this issue would rumble on and on for early Christians. Purity, of course, was at stake when you got involved with the Gentiles. For they were unclean too, by cultural tradition. Contact with Gentiles, of course, is something that Jesus has already done. And he's about to do it some more later in chapter 7. Purity involved food that you could and could not eat. Animals that were clean, animals that were unclean. Something Jesus speaks about here too. And of course, Peter and Paul fall out about this issue in in, in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. Think about Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. When that sheet comes down with all the animals. And uh, he finds animals on that sheet that he wasn't ever expecting to find on the end of his fork. And and the the vision comes to him and it's rise Peter, kill and eat. And and he's wrestling with both of these issues even even then, you know, later on in, in, in the Bible. 
To what extent was Jesus at that wedding in Cana saying something about the need for those ritual water pots as he fills them with water and turns it into new wine? Think about that. To what extent was, the, was, was, was this new wine of Jesus going to change the old wine of, of Old Testament law and practice? In other words, what's going to change now that Jesus has arrived? Good question. Notice that Jesus doesn't try to explain his disciples' behaviour here. He doesn't go on the defensive, does he? He doesn't go on the defensive. He actually goes on the attack with these people for for there's a much bigger issue at stake first of all notice Jesus exposing extras exposing extras Uh, Jesus makes a clear distinction here doesn't he there are what are called variously in the text other traditions the tradition of the elders the commandments of men the tradition of men your tradition and your tradition that you've handed down there there are what, what are called that various names And there are what are called the commandment of God and the word of God. One has been handed down generation by generation and comes from men and is part of Jewish tradition. The other has been handed down generation by generation, is written down and comes from God. Jesus is saying they're different. But where did they come from more specifically? The ten commandments of God, of course, were were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We read about that in Exodus 20. They're given to Moses orally. Spoken by God. And then in Exodus 31 it says. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai. The two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone. Written with the finger of God. Two tablets containing the ten commandments. Two tablets containing the summary of the moral law of God. Two tablets written with the finger of God. Specifically, special to say the least. And of course the rest of God's instruction on Sinai was also written down uh, in, in, in the book of Exodus. The rest of the five books of the law were, were written down by Moses, given by the Holy Spirit uh, to the Jewish people. that was known as the Torah, the law. But what about these traditions? Where do they come from? Well... The Torah, the twelve, the five books of the law, as I've just said, were were given uh, to Moses. They were kept in written form. But the traditions were held orally. They were the application. That's important here. The application of how to live in accordance with what the law said. The views of key scholars and rabbis and that sort of thing. A compilation of them discussing and debating what the Torah means in practice. What the law means in practice. The application of how to live as a good Jew as a result of what God said. Later, uh, in the first centuries after Christ, it would be written down in, in, in what's called the Talmud. And that still exists for Jewish people today. But before that, it's just held orally. In, in oral tradition. Passed down very carefully uh, from one generation to the next. You see, the Pharisees are saying here, in effect, that Jesus is happy to witness the breaking of the law of Moses. He's a a lawbreaker. That's what they're saying. By his disciples' failure to wash their hands before before eating. They were trying to discredit Jesus, weren't they? They knew he was popular. They knew he had a big following. But they're saying, he's not a proper Jew, you know. He's, he's, He's a lawbreaker. In fact, he's actually against our cultural practice of what it means for us to be Jewish. Jewish. It's just like it was in chapter 2. You don't want to listen to him. 
he, he's, he's a lawbreaker. But he was not. Because the law doesn't actually require that you wash your hands at mealtimes. No wonder we know little about it. It's not in the Bible. So it's not enforceable as a religious requirement. It's just in the oral tradition. The law doesn't actually require you to wash out your pots and pans and cups and dining couches. It's just oral tradition. An interpretation that doesn't come from the text. Nothing wrong with washing your hands before meals, of course. It's, it's a good practice to ward off diseases, isn't it? We, we know with modern science and microbiology that that's how you stop yourself getting sick. And in, in public buildings we have those little alcohol gel things and we, and we use them. And it's a good idea, but it's not a biblical command. It never was. It's not in the Bible. So Jesus creates this distinction, right? So on one hand you've got uh, what, what God actually said and, and then you've got what human tradition has decided is required. So you can't take a commandment written by the finger of God, like the fifth commandment, which Jesus uses here, honour your father and your mother, and put it on the same page as wash your hands before meals in the ceremonial washing jars. You can't do that, Jesus says. One is human tradition, interpretation, based on no sound passage in scripture, no sound interpretation of any passage of scripture. The other is the command of God. They're different. You can't take something from elsewhere in the five books of, of Moses either. That's what that second part of verse 10 is. From Exodus 21. It's another part of the books of the law. You can't take wash your hands. Um, you can't take that and equate it with wash your hands when you come from the marketplace. You just can't do that. Now I do realise this morning. That the commands of God. The words of scripture do require application. They always do. When you read your Bible at home, you're not just to think, oh, that's a lovely passage. You're meant to think, how do I live that out? You're meant to think, how do I apply that to my life? You're meant to ask God to help you to understand that. And that's what we do in church as well. We seek to understand how we live as a result of what God actually says. And clearly here, we have an example of that. Because it tells us that in order to apply, honour your father and your mother... Well, what you have to do is to provide for them financially. It's, it's there. That's the application. It's given for us here, but it, it's, that's the principle, isn't it? You take what God actually said and you apply it. But uh, the application from tradition with no sound biblical backing is not in the same league. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, you can ignore it and just be as clean before God. That's what he's saying. It's not a holiness issue at all. It's not about, that, that, that doesn't impact your cleanliness before God, is what he's saying. And with hindsight and, and the benefit of Jesus pointing this out, we can, we can see how foolish those Pharisees were. We could shake our head at them. I mean, if it's not in the scriptures, there's no need to practice it. And, and we can dismiss their traditions about purity of hands and pots and pans and silly, a silly fixation on, on matters of no consequence. But then what about us? Of course. What about us? I wonder are there things that we elevate to the level of scripture without actually realising it? Maybe subtly like our cleanliness is next to godliness for us. You know? Things like, you know, for me, you know, if people aren't dressed properly in church, well, I can't have it. It's not right. 
If, if the pastor is too casually dressed, I can't listen to him, I'm put off. If it's not an organ, then I'm out of here, this kind of thing. If he doesn't use the right sort of well-worn phrases when explaining the gospel, then, then he's not preaching at all. Now don't get me wrong, some traditions are good. A Christmas program, church buildings, a pulpit, church choirs, bringing someone to hear the good news being preached. None of those are actually in the Bible, you know, but they're all good. In my opinion, good things that I think we should keep. But that does not mean that they rank above scripture. Now this is a challenge. Because tradition and the way we have done things uh, holds a strong place in our minds. Because we all like our own way of doing things, don't we? It's hard to shake that, that, that idea. And in fact we might even feel anxious if we lose some of those things that make us feel safe and comfortable. But what if we bring the word of God to bear on it? And it doesn't hold water. Can we see it in a different category then? Can we, where we can see knock-on effects? Maybe if there were knock-on effects of that tradition that were bad. Maybe would we, would we be willing to, to let it go? Um, if, if for the sake of, of others from a different place and upbringing. If it was a barrier to them. Would, would we? If it was just a tradition. It wasn't scripture. It was just a tradition. If we could reach more people without it, would we be willing to do that? Thirdly, we see crumbling commands. Why can't they just continue with both, you say? Well, what's the problem here? These are harmless traditions. It's just a bit of hand washing. It's no big deal. Uh, Jesus says, no, hold on a minute here. There's a problem. There's a problem. There are three levels in the text here that show that Jesus sees this as a dangerous practice that he's he's talking about okay he's not just concerned that there's another level of requirement being enforced on the lost sheep of Israel he's actually concerned about the impact of the non-commandment on the actual commandment that's what he's doing here okay and you see that in the in the in the in the words he uses in the verbs that he uses the first one is leave look at verse 8 you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man Rather than it being the case of both being practiced, okay, uh, the Pharisees insist on their tradition being held. That, that causes them to prioritize. It causes them to leave the real commandment lagging behind. When you make it all about an add-on issue, it's dangerous. Because if you, if you emphasize something specifically, then very quickly other things get left behind. At the time of the Reformation, and probably still today, um, as uh, we have a people visit in Ireland, the, the Roman Catholic belief system, uh, in it, church tradition and scripture are supposed to apparently be equal in their authority. Church tradition and scripture are supposed to be equal. But what actually happened in practice, and history tells us to be the case, was that tradition comes out on top every time. That's the danger, isn't it? You say it's equal, but it's actually on top. The people become great hand washers, but poor worshippers in spirit and in truth. Verse 9 goes further. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This time it's not leave, it's rejecting. Jesus is being semi-sarcastic, isn't he? It's not a fine way in the good sense. It's not a fine way at all. Not only do they leave the actual commands, 
they have now rejected them. It's not passive, like leave. Now it's, now it's active, reject. Verse 13 goes even further. Thus making void, nullifying the word of God. It's one thing to reject. It's quite another to undermine it legally. Or to make void is to have a practice that in effect nullifies it for everyone. Oh, you don't need to do that because of this. What's, what's on top now? You see? You get the idea? Jesus shows this by an example of, of, of what's called Corban. Now that's not Jeremy, but a tradition. Again, not mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. And this is actually weighed against the actual fifth commandment, which is honour your father and your mother in this example. So you imagine the situation, okay? Your parents are ageing and in need. And as we've noted already, it's, it's quite a clear application of honour your father and mother to look after them financially in their need to provide for them. But the Pharisees have negated the application of this command by teaching that people could give money to the temple in, instead in lieu of helping their parents in need. Through a tradition that's called Corban, by saying it is Corban when you give a gift, you would exempt yourself from any requirement to look after your parents. Whatever money might have been used to provide for your parents would have been dedicated to the temple treasury instead. And what's, what's more, once you said that magic phrase, it is Corban, there was no way back. It was binding. It was a, it, no refunds, uh, no way back, deal. That's it. In other words, the Pharisees took a Corban offering and used it for an illegitimate and devious scheme to defraud parents and actually enrich the temple, which enriched them, of course. Thus the law of God was nullified. God never intended the good principle of devoting something to the temple to be twisted to actually dishonour fathers and mothers. The traditions of man should never usurp the authority of God's word. But it had. Jesus turns the tables, doesn't he? he? He's being accused of breaking the law. Who's breaking the law now? It's them. It's not him at all. And not, it's not just Corbin. He could have carried on. It says in verse 13, there are many other things besides this. That Jesus could have mentioned. And finally he defines Defilement for them. From verse 14 onwards in that last section, Jesus is in effect saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. When it comes to defilement, when it comes to uncleanness, it's not what goes into a person, that, that bit of dirt on the cup or, or, or pot or, or on your hands or, or that, that makes you unholy. It's not what goes into the stomach. It's not food. Mark adds the aside in brackets, brackets that... By this Jesus declares all foods clean. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's not what goes in. It's what comes out of the heart. Says verse 20 and verse 21. Don't clean the external. When the internal is rotten to the core. That's like tidying the deck chairs on the Titanic. There's no point to that. It's about to sink. Jesus calls for reality here. Doesn't he? That's important. He's calling for reality. He calls them hypocrites. In verse 6, because there's no reality. That's one who plays the part on a stage. That's what that word means. That's a, that's a role player. That's an actor. A hypocrite. A fraud. A pretender. One whose actions contradict reality. He uses a quotation from Isaiah 29 to show this, doesn't he? 
This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Oh, it all looks good, but you've just wallpapered over the cracks. You've suggested that the external things are enough, but they're not. They're not. They never were. It's about reality. Practice is not enough. It's about reality. It always is with God. One of the dangers of being in a country uh, with a cultural Christian heritage is that you have to wonder how many people do the external but have no experience of the real cleansing of Christ. That's the sort of thing that concerns me deeply in our nation. You have to wonder. It's a dangerous thing to promote man-made traditions. To, to teach them as, as doctrine. To promote them like doctrine, like, like doctrine. It distracts, doesn't it? It undermines. It, it even makes void the real biblical teaching. And in that sort of system, it's hard to know what's real, isn't it? But of course God knows. He's, he's not in any doubt. Legalism sucks the life from you as a Christian. A, a, a stick to your rules, never worry about spiritual formation, prioritizing the look over the reality. It sucks the life out of you. It does. People pleasing, holding on to practices that have no biblical background for, from a questionable method of understanding the scriptures. And making them the mark of proper Christians. And saying, you know, they're not doing it over there. It sucks the life out of you. It's soul destroying. Unless the specific teaching or, or some general principle of scripture can be shown to prohibit something, we've no right to call it sin. Unless specific teaching or general principle can be shown to command something, we've no right to insist on it. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. Jesus tells us this very short parable in verse 16. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the thing that comes out of a person, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he always, as he always does, Jesus uh, gets to the heart of the matter, which you know by now is the matter of the heart. It's substance over form, it's reality over rules. Now we're not talking about surface cleaning here. We're not talking about that edge of the cup and making sure it looks okay. We're talking about deep inside. We're talking about a defiled heart. Because out of the heart comes awful things. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. Where does that list hit you? I know where it hits me. Sadly we're not done with it yet. One day we will be. Is it the family that brought you up? An abusive father? A mother who showed you very little love? Is it the world around you that you're a victim of and it's just the way it is? No, it's, it's you and it's me. Isn't it? It's in our heart. We'll see this tonight in Psalm 51. It's in our very nature. It's a nature that we're born with. It's in the command center. It's in the heart, isn't it? No use concerning yourself with the exterior. No use trying to clean up your life. The inside is corrupt. You're only wasting your time. Jesus comes to perform heart surgery, doesn't he? He comes to deep clean 
He comes to promote reality. For he can see reality. And when he he does that, he declares that the rules on clean and unclean foods have, have now fulfilled their purpose. You see, they're not there for all time. But they were there to instill an awareness of God's holiness. That's that's why they were there and practiced in the Old Testament. Those purity rules, right? They were there until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, they're no longer needed to be practiced. Because the point of, of them has been fulfilled. Ceremonial law, like unclean and clean foods, have been fulfilled in Christ. He's here now. The picture has given way to the reality. But that which is written by the finger of God, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it continues. It continues. Jesus is, is showing, isn't he, the, the, the change is coming because he's here. It's, it's, it's um, the end of the Old Testament ceremonial laws on cleanliness. But he's also showing something that never should have been there in the first place. And that's these man-made traditions that, that have been set on equal with the word of God. And should not have been. How do we apply this this morning? Of course we find it easy don't we. To do the outward things. We wouldn't say it was pretense. It's probably not. But we do tend to retreat back. To to standard outward practice. We get good at the outward things. Saying the right words. Nodding at the right time. Showing up often enough. You know. Practicing the, the traditions that we love and know. And many of them, there's nothing wrong with them. But Jesus says that the more important matter is the thing you cannot fake. And this is the challenge, isn't it? For I can fake too. You know that? I know the right words. I know the right look. But it's the inside of us that matters. Has Jesus went to work on your inside? Are you another one of a string of successful patients on the cardiac ward of Jesus? Has he cleansed you from within? Is he still working on your heart, Christian? Because that's what he would be doing if 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 he has. How is your relationship with him? Is Is it current? What about your personal prayer life? Is it real? Is it meaningful? Or do you just say the same prayer to get it done? Big challenge. It's a big challenge for each of us to reassess, myself included, to reassess the condition of our hearts before him. Am I a biblical Christian or just a traditional one? Of course, for that to be the case, we we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know what the scripture says, don't we? You need to know the difference. We We need to know what God actually says. We need to do what Paul says in Colossians 3. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The external is not as important. The internal is vital. Let's pray together, shall we?